Welcome to Settle the Far. This is Corey Garvey. In this podcast, I sit down and I speak with people who have made big moves in their life. That could be moving to a new country, starting a new career, or possibly just joining a new community. I want to know what it is that motivated them to make that change, what it was, what it was like actually going through it, and looking back, what they feel like they've learned along the way. Today I'm speaking with Magdalena Algawam. Magdalena is from Poland. She's from a family in which her mother's Polish, her father is Iraqi, and throughout her life she has lived in a number of different places, from Algeria to Poland to Germany. She gets into her experience going to Germany as a college student, where she didn't know the language very well, but needed to learn it to really understand how she could learn and get into her studies. She then turned that into a professional career as a software engineer in Germany, where, among other things, she was one of nearly 80 people in the company and yet was the only woman working in her her division. She gets into how this sort of situation impacted her and what it was that she learned throughout all of this. And specifically, um, you know, I've been very lucky because Magdalena and I, we met nearly three years ago here in London, and we lived together for about six months during that time. We were both uh, sort of outside of our own comfort zones, living with people we hadn't met before. And I think for me, this has sort of led to one of the better, stronger relationships I've formed in the last few years, essentially because, you know, at the time I was so um, stressed out with work and I was, I was so intensely involved in the things that we were working on, as was Magdalena, that we really got to a point where having one another there was very important for us. Each day we had someone we could rely on. And I've been impressed with just the way that she takes on new challenges in the world and doesn't look at, you know, languages or some of these um, stereotypes as things to slow her down, but instead has been able to sort of push ahead and drive ahead towards the things she's most interested in, in her career and in her life and not let, you know, small things stop her. Magdalena's outgoing, she's ambitious, she's unafraid of a lot of the things that I think slow down many others, and for that reason, I, I, you know, she's, she's a perfect person to hear from about really being able to let go of the expectations that might be on you and find a new place, a new career that you know, is interesting and not letting small things stop you on your direction there. Settle the Far can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play, or my website, podcast.coreygarvey.com. If you have any suggestions, you want to give feedback, please subscribe, give me a rating, give me a review, let me know what you think. I'd love to shape this podcast around what the listeners are interested in more than anything. And if you have suggested guests, just let me know, head over to the website or write a review on any of those podcasting uh, um, platforms. So without further ado, enjoy this conversation with Magdalena Aguam. Hey, so... I am here today with Magdalena Algawam. Did I pronounce that right? Yeah, it's fine. All right, great. Um, and Magda and I, we have we met in London a few years ago and have known each other for about two and a half years now. Um, so Magda, maybe you can give a little background about yourself and, and how you got to London where we were working alongside one another. So how I got to London is because of Alexandra de Kock. And, you know, my English is not, it's not my first language. So when I got an email with Alexandra de Kock, I right away wanted to put it to spam while I was living in Berlin. And uh, Alexandra de Kock was not giving up on me. So about fifth emails from, in from her, I was like, okay, maybe this EF thing is a real thing. Yeah, maybe you can and give I, a little background because I think just her, her name makes it sound like it could be a spam. 
Um, a background about EF. So EF is a um, incubator or like pre-seed, I don't know, like startup uh, incubator that collects engineers from around the world. And they put them together in one room for, I don't remember, six weeks and want them to form pairs and then try to build a startup company. And they have three weeks to prove that their startup company is worth investing in. So what they're trying to do at the time is to bring me to London to be part of that program. But because maybe this was kind of an unfortunate name selection for the person who was, uh, you know, headhunter for the for the incubator. I did not take it seriously, but at the point I started taking it seriously and did my research, it turned out that EF is actually a legit thing. And they were, you know, um, there even for places like Forbes would mention them. So I decided, okay, let's give it a try. And then this is how I met you because EF, after I applied and went through a few interviews with them, they invited me for the program where they... Uh, as you know, in the program, you get a scholarship and they try to form a community and they create chat, group chat for people. And this is when people who come to London can you know, meet and try to already start uh, networking before the program starts. So I ask if anybody's looking for a flat and that's how I met you. <laughs> so that's a little background. Yeah. So you and I ended up living together during that, which was quite an experience you know we we both got to work together during the day and then complain about people we were working with at night um not, no, not only that not only that i would say that's not the coolest part about uh, living with you you know i uh, as you know i grew up in a multicultural family so for me i'm always curious about people's customs what they like doing and i really do appreciate having you that a time in my life because i learned so much from you you know i remember the stack of the books you had with you and i was like yes <laughs> which one can i read now and uh i remember one thing that was like the coolest event ever you know when you learn english they're always like you know americans have them uh, thanksgiving you first of all we don't know what thanksgiving is but it looks cool second we only know there is turkey and i never forget you when you brought pumpkin you're like i'm gonna make pie and i'm like dude you should i don't know what you're on but stop and then you did make you did make a pumpkin pie and i even google i seriously googled it i was like this guy he seemed normal until now, you know, but the pumpkin <laughs> pie is a little off. It was not off. It was about the most delicious thing I've ever had in my life. And, you know, it was a very humbling experience for me to learn that you can actually make a pie from a pumpkin. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm glad. I'm glad you got a nice taste of uh, American culture in London. I Thanksgiving has been one of those things that I always feel homesick about, especially in London, because I remember that day we didn't we didn't even get we don't get any time off, you know, it's just a regular work day. So I ended up leaving the office at about noon and I was cooking for five hours or something like that. And then everybody else came in at the end of the night. And I remember there was only, only one other person, Sid, who, um, who had even lived in America at any point had ever celebrated Thanksgiving. So it was nice to like introduce everybody to not only the, the holiday, but the foods. It's like, it didn't even occur to me that people would have no idea what pumpkin pie is. They don't trust me. And, you know, being the pragmatic, pragmatic person that I am, I was like, why do you make it yourself? Whatever that is, I'm sure there is some American store out there. You can get it. And you're like, no, Magda, it's Thanksgiving. It has to be homemade. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you know how it is. Uh, you got to have that. You kind of have those things that you miss from childhood that you're trying to bring back. Um, and with that, um, Maybe you can give a little background of yourself. So you said you're not a native English speaker. Um, where where did you grow up? 
And what was that, I guess, experience like in the, in the beginning of your life? So my parents met in Poland. My dad is from Iraq and my mom is Polish. Before I was born, they moved to Algeria, North Africa. And this is where our family spent first couple of years. Then they moved back to Poland. And then when I was 22, I think, I moved to Berlin. And then I spent there like six, seven years. And then I moved to London. Last year, I moved back to Poland. And now I'm on the verge of going somewhere else. <laughs> okay. And when you were in Poland, so your dad is from Iraq. Your mom is from Poland, uh, and they they moved to Algeria. Are there? I guess I'm wondering is it, what was that like? Or did, was it a, an Iraqi cultural upbringing? Was it Polish? Was it a mix of both? What was what was your your experience like as a kid? So you know, when you are three years old, you don't remember that much. But since we moved to Poland, it's very funny because, for example. When it comes to cuisine, my both parents cooked. So I know Arabic cuisine very well, and I know Polish. We grew up in Europe, and our mom is Christian, Catholic, and our dad is an atheist. So she would, you know, um, always do all of the Christian, Catholic, slash Polish traditions that we had. So I grew up very European in that, in that context, you know, like Christmas. I think Christmas is what we discussed uh, before, like, I had to come back for Christmas after traveling this year, because if you don't come back for Christmas in Poland, your family disowns you, period, you know? This is something you cannot miss. It's yeah. Christmas. And a funny thing is, in Poland, for example, for Christmas Eve, we have 12 dishes. And you have to try every single one of them, because if you miss one dish, it means you're going to miss something next year, about 12 months. So, you know, in Poland, I guess it's like your Thanksgiving I am a kind of a person who tries to optimize and, you know, I'll cook in 10 minutes and I'll try to buy sub products or something half made. But for Christmas, you have to make it all yourself, like your pumpkin pie. You have to start from scratch. <laughs> you spent hours in the kitchen and my family, like yours, it's uh, it's four of us kids. So there are three girls and, and my brother. And since I was a child, you know, Christmas preparation is like everybody's in the kitchen. And if you were not doing anything, they'll send you to wash the car, you know, but you have to participate. <laughs> Can you give me an example of some of those dishes? So on Christmas Eve, because, you know, it's, it's because it's a Christian tradition and, you know, uh, Christmas for us is waiting for the Christ to be born. We are not allowed to drink alcohol and we are not allowed to eat meat. So all of the 12 dishes, you're... And usually be um, at 12 at night, you go to a mass, special mass, mass at 12 at night. And after that mass, then you can meet for early breakfast at 2 a.m. And then you can have meat and alcohol after the Christ is born. Because usually okay. in Poland, 20, um, no, four weeks prior in Advent, people try to, you know, avoid alcohol, avoid, or a lot of people in a, in a region where I grew up would not eat meat. So Christmas Eve is about eating all of the things that are still I don't know how to say it, like still in preparation for. Yeah. So there's some things that I don't even know how to say in English, but there will be dumplings. There will always be fish. I don't know this fish's name in English. Uh, there will be a lot of fish. There would be, there are a lot of traditional stuff that I don't even know how to say in English. Oh my God. Um, I remember your mom, when, when your mom and your sister came and visited, they brought such good food. And I, I was... I never, I've never been to Poland. I've eaten some different Polish dishes, I guess, but I, I it was awesome. Uh, and I could tell that, you know, she, your family clearly like had a close relationship with cooking and, and it wasn't what you're talking about of having to be in the kitchen around Christmas. It was pretty evident when, uh, when she came and, and you guys were like all cooking in the kitchen and getting everything ready. 
I guess it's a bonding thing also. And I think in Poland, we have still a lot of the culture of preparing your meals at home that are healthy, you know, because if you know what you're putting on a table, but this eating together, breakfast, lunch, dinner, or at least a dinner as a family, while I was growing up, it's a, it's a big thing and it's not only our thing. So, you know, the, the archetype of a Polish mama is a woman who cooks a lot and she spends hours in the kitchen because she wants to make sure that her kids are nourished. <laughs> so, so Christmas is definitely one of these times when you are like, um, okay, 12 might be too much, but it's a tradition and you could not skip it. <laughs> so, of course. How did having a dad who was from a completely different culture how did he interact with all of that and how did how did his culture sort of find its way into your life um so he in, in because he's an atheist so obviously they all of the christian and catholic upbringing and i think they decided early on with my mom that we're going to be raised christian he would uh, participate for example if my mom would leave for sunday he would not go to church himself but he would bring us to church when she was gone so he was very respectful of sure. the culture we were growing up in but he would participate in i don't know our birthdays he was he would cook arabic stuff he would make arabic candy so he would bring a little bit of like you know even a cousin but we were we were raised more in terms of like cultural we were more, more European because it's completely different than, than Iraq that you know now, you know, yeah. but uh, men, women interactions, etc. But he would participate uh, in things that were not in conflict with the way we were raised. Sure. And I think there are a lot of common things between my parents. So, you know, Arabic culture is a place where you don't have like elderly houses. And when you tell someone, how can you, they, they don't understand, like, how can there be no, someone in a family who would not accept someone who does not have anybody else, whether it's an orphan or like a elder person. Like if, if they don't have kids, there is someone in a family who will take them and take care of them when they are older. We have that in Europe, but there are a lot of things. So we, even though we have that in Europe, there are things in Arabic culture that I don't understand, but the commonality is that the family is a very important thing. And this is how both of my, this is what I think the, the value that both of my parents agreed on, that the family is the most important thing in your life. And that's how they both are and how they both acted. And they had, I call it like in a, between themselves, you know, there is no perfect person for you to have a relationship, but there is a perfect deal, I call, because what's good for you might not necessarily be good for me, but my parents, I think they reached a very good deal between themselves. So I think they had a lot of things they agreed on before they formed a family and you could see how they acted out throughout their life. They had separate, they they had this very good deal when, when they did not conflict with each other and they were, I think the values that they had were very similar. And I think once that's like proper and set, it's very easy, even despite the differences, like little differences, you can work through if the values are right. Yeah, that's... But, yeah, carry on. Sorry. No, it's 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 so true. Like if you just start at the bottom and the foundation of how you're thinking about all the other decisions you make, if you come to a common agreement on those things in the in the base of your relationship, it's not it's not very there's not very many questions when it gets to the smaller things because they they're rooted in some sort of lower level value that you have. That, that's, I think this is the, the only thing you cannot negotiate in a relationship value because if the values are different, it, if for one person family is a value and for the, the other person the career is the most important thing, you're not going to meet in the middle because you need, and I think, yeah, this is this is what, what happened, but also there are different things. So, you know, we grew up in a very small town. 
So you know how kids, like, when you were in a kindergarten and you were arguing and it's like, you're stupid. No, you're more stupid. No, you were the stupidest in the room. And then there came the, the strongest word and you were Arab, you know? It was like, once they said that, it's like, that's it, you know? You cannot beat that. So uh, growing up in a small, very homogeneous town in Poland was quite challenging because we were the Arab family, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and... Um, as, as a child, I did not like it, but I learned to really appreciate and embrace it once I became a professional, a woman in like men-dominated field. I've had it all. I've had all of the attitudes. You're not going to kill my spark. You know, you can try. But I had such a good training as a child that I know my worth. I know my value. And whatever you do, you know, it's not going to affect me. So I think on one side, you might think it was tough. On the other side, because of the unity that my parents had and, the you know, the confidence they built in us, my mom would always say, like, do what you feel is right because people are going to talk regardless. This kind of values, like, they equip you for life. Yeah. I, I can't believe how much <clears throat> recently I've been listening to things and how clear it is that sort of these challenges that you deal with as a kid are, they're so important because you end up getting into a place where at some point in your life you're going to have, uh, you're going to have challenges, but you're also going to be faced with a lot of, like, like how how do you enter into the situation? Do you believe that you deserve certain things, or that you should um, you should have to to work for certain things, or, or do you give people respect and have a clear, open slate that you um, of what you expect from them going into a relationship, or do you have some stereotypes that you set and things like that? And I can imagine that being stereotyped or being thought of in a certain way as a kid, it must set you up either to be frustrated with those people who sort of have those stereotypes or more likely to realize that like most of the stereotypes that we have are not really based on reality. And like, you know, for me, I grew up in a homogeneous place and I was part of that, that group. And I had a lot of views on I don't think I had views on certain types of people. It was just that, um, you know, there was like a handful of African-Americans, a handful of Jewish people, a handful of Asian people. And I didn't, um, I never was the person who was feeling out of place because of what I looked like or what my name was or anything. But there were definitely other things that, that I did feel out of place because of, you know, I, I used to, uh, get picked on for, for all types of things. And, I, I I wonder how much that um, you know I I guess for me I see a lot of the the people where that I deem successful in the world especially in in the U.S. and oftentimes they're immigrants or they're people who had some similar situation where they moved to a town and they were they were new and they had to fit in and they were getting picked on or something like that and it just becomes very clear that the um, the experience of going through that it's almost better to get it to have it happen at a younger age, because if it happens at an older age, or you don't even recognize that, you know, you are the, the person who doesn't see what's happening and what's where you stand in the world, you don't really um, learn as much as you could if, if you're in that position early on. It's not only that, it's funny that you say that, because uh, I don't know if you know Jordan Peterson, but recently I've been listening to him so much and read his books, and I, I love the guy. 
And one of the things he said in, in, in one of the lectures I listened to is that the third gen, the first and second generation of immigrants are doing much better than the standard, let's say, American. And then the third generation is the same as the standard American. And it, it shows that, you know, and he was trying to, to find a causality, like where does it come from? First of all, they see the hardship of their parents, which have it harder because they kind of not, they're not part of the biggest group, right? Then the second thing is, they are conditioned and they have, as, as you say, this hardship in, in childhood that teaches you to be resistant and resi resilient, right? So this is this is interesting thing that you say that the immigrant, you see a lot of immigrants doing very well. And the funny thing is, as I said, that they do well until the third generation, when the third generation comes back to the, you know, to the, to the average, which is very interesting phenomena for me personally. Yeah, I mean, th there's that, and Jordan Peterson, I, I think he... I've listened to him a lot. He has some really like novel ways of looking at things that seem very simple after listening to them. But I think part of it is that there's this struggle that that the third generation or further down doesn't deal with. And if you can recognize that you're sort of not dealing with the struggle thanks to the hard work and the perseverance that your parents, grandparents, great-grandparents went through... Um, at least it allows you to see that like, okay, I'm, I'm in a fortunate place and that being comfortable, being in a spot where I'm not getting picked on, I'm not um, the odd person in school, in work or whatever, that that is a, a privilege that has been provided by your grandparents or great grandparents um, going through the hardships, then it's a little bit easier to deal with. But I think most of the time, and at least for me for a long time, it, it never felt like a privilege it felt just like the situation and therefore being comfortable being able to have whatever food for lunch that you want and then when you get it taken away it seems so frustrating and it seems like you have gotten the the bad the bad deal it's sort of where is your baseline and for a lot of groups the baseline is not as as high and therefore it's constantly a feeling of I deserve more than this because I see other people's baselines much higher. Whereas if your baseline is very high, it's hard to keep that motivation because you, you don't see um, yourself as being slighted just based on where you were born or what you look like or something. Yeah, I think this is this gratitude, atti this gratitude attitude, you know. For example, I had very shitty flatmates in my life. And, you know, Thanks, then Amanda. I... No, 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 no. But that's what I'm trying to say. And then I met you. And, you know, living with you has taught me you you grew up in a similar family that I grew up with, you know, when the fairness is part of any relationship you have, you know, when I eat your, I don't know, candy, I'm trying to replace I'm trying to replace it as soon as possible. When I use some of yours, I'm telling you and I'm trying to compensate for it. It's like having you after a shitty flatmate made me so much more grateful because I realized that there is so much emotional hassle that you can have when you're not living with a, you know, with a fair person, with a nice person, with someone you want to interact with. So, you know, living with, I, I don't think I would be able to, I came from this gratitude uh, attitude because of what I've lived through before. You know, I had flatmates who, I don't know, were eating my food, destroying everything, keeping everything dirty. And with, with you, it worked out very, very fast. Like you, I think it's also similar background that you were brought up in a similar family, you have similar amount of siblings, and you were brought up with similar values, like 
we are there for each other, whoever it is. It is a family, it is a person you're interacting with, your flatmate, your friend, and we did not take advantage, even though we could help. Like, if we're leaving things in a fridge, like, you could have eaten my stuff, but you didn't because you respect that. Or if you wanted to do something, you know, you would ask. Had I not had that experience uh, before, I would not be able to appreciate having you because I would have come out of family that was, and it would be my norm. Do you know yeah, what I mean? That's, yeah. that's the kind of thing I, I think. And this is similar in life and the things you do. If if you're, if you can see the difference, then that makes you more grateful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I wanted to ask you about something that you did while you were in Poland. I remember that you told me at some point about your time playing violin. How, what was your interaction with music? I know that the, uh, Poland and I guess the Eastern Europe is very well versed in their orchestra music. Um, I myself played trombone for about three years. I was the worst player of all time, but I know that you were you were a big violin player. So what was that like? I wouldn't say I was a big violin player. Uh, you know, my sister wanted to play piano, and I loved violin, and I wanted to go to. There is only one music public school in. There's only one music school, and it was public music school in my hometown, and it was hard to get to. And I think it was it was amazing for me from the beginning because I loved music. It was terrible, imagine terrifying for my family for the first two years. Like I don't know if you ever heard a kid learning the violin, but you know when the piano you after two classes you can already play something. On violin after three months you are still looking for the right sound. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I think this is another thing that made me that made it easier for me to learn languages, for example, because music opens so much of your hearing and it was a huge outlet for me as a kid. I loved it. Like, you know, um and I, I had to learn classical music, but uh but it was a huge outlet for me. It was something I loved to do. I regret not doing it anymore, but uh sure. What do you mean by that? That that it so so you said that it helped with languages. Like right now, I'm and have been for a couple of years now struggling through Turkish, and I think it, I've gotten to the point where I can hear the language very well, and I just need to put the time in and learn certain vocabulary. But um, you speak several languages um, fluently. How how do you feel like playing an instrument helped with that? You know, in a I think it's kind of the Eastern European way, you know, in of teaching anything, which changes. It started changing, but American ways, like you give, um, you know, you appreciate every kid. You say you did great to everyone. In Pol in in Eastern Europe, it's not like that. You did not great until you did great, and if you did not great, you will be told you did not do great, and you have to get better. And as a child, and even in a music school, it was like very evident for me that. I have to do well and you play an orchestra etc but unless you do well you're told you're not doing well and you're like damn it i'm taking everybody else down but what they did to us we had exams and you know in in a primary secondary school you do not have exams in in music school from the primary school you have exams when you had have to learn huge amount of notes by heart and i think that trains your memory and patience a lot and discipline and this is what you need with languages for example because learning any language is a lot of discipline and learning by heart. Like how I learned any language, it's like I, I listen to music a lot. I take words that I don't understand, you know, and then I listen to movies. I listen to the news. I take things I don't understand. I learn by heart. It's a lot of learning by heart. So I think this training and this discipline early on in your life is helping you later on. And I think it's also like, you know, you have to learn by heart. With music, you have to learn by heart. 
Like, if you want to play, I don't know, Mozart concert, you have to learn it by heart. Vivaldi, you learn it by heart because if you perform on your exam or if you have concert in music school, again, from the first grade, even first graders would have to perform. You have to, you cannot take notes with you. So I think this helps later on with developing that, you know, it's, I think the mem memorizing part is also training. So you have a lot of training, you have had a lot of training and you do have a lot of patience for that because you've done it for years in music school. So I think that did help really. Yeah, the discipline part is such a big uh, aspect. I, I see my my niece, who is eight, is right now playing the piano. And in most of her life, and I remember in most of mine, you're free to go. The expectations aren't extremely high. But with music, the like you said, you have to learn things. And you can really judge the progress that you're making. And I know that it happens in school and you know, you start reading and doing math and things like that. But this is a, a bit of an independent sort of piece of, of learning that you have to do. And for me, a lot of it was sports, which looking back, it's like you get different things from sports. There wasn't as much um, memorization or, or things that you have to learn. It's not a little bit. There's some plays and some strategy and things like that. But it's more... Uh, at times you're told, you know, you have to, when, when you're faced with this situation, here's how you should deal with it. And you want to be able to recall that during the game or something like that. But music is, it's such an interesting way that we like expect very young people to almost perform like adults in a lot of ways and be able to pick up um, things that we've learned, be able to build on what you learned the previous week and stuff like that. So uh, in a lot of ways, I, I'm, you know, you bring up being frustrated that I guess you're not playing violin now. I wish I had taken music far more seriously as a kid. I try to play guitar right now and my patience is lost very quickly and how bad I sound is, uh, doesn't allow me to keep going. So I can imagine. Trust me, in our, in our age, Corey, whatever you do, it gets worse. And don't be frustrated with your Turkish because I learned German when I was 20 something. And I remember, I, I started questioning my brain. I was like, I remember different languages. It was not as hard. And with German, I was like, damn it. It's been six months now that I, you know, sacrifice two hours every morning before work. And it's still so far from where I want to be. So I think it also changes with age and our cognitive skills. I don't know. Maybe it's it's not scientific, but I have a feeling that it, it really does change. As a child, you're able to pick up so much quicker and you're developing the skills and even your motory skills that you need for instruments, right? Like for violin, you need to have very fast fingers. You need to vibrate. It's a much, kind of a motory skills that are so much harder as an adult. So either my memory fails me and it was equally hard or it was really much easier when I was younger. Yeah, so you just brought up your German studies. How, at what point did you start learning German? Why were you learning German? And curiosity, what other languages did you know at that time? Why I started learning German. So, you know, I did my uh, undergrad in Poland, but then I did exchange year in Berlin. And they told me I can do my subjects in English. So I go to this class called Semiconductor Devices, and all of the sudden, I checked the room three times. I'm in the right place. I asked people. They say, yes, it's semiconductor devices. And this person says in the morning, like, we'll come into high blight about Elementa. You know, it's like, 
Semiconductor devices in German is one word and it's Halbleiter by Bauelemente. Another time I could only say hello in German and I had a year ahead of German classes that I had to pass because I got a scholarship for that exchange. And had I not passed it, I would have to return it. So this was a little bit of pressure for me to really understand. And you know, luckily I started engineering. So there is like, I don't know, 300, 400 words that you need to understand in order to understand what you need to do for a given task. But that was like my crash course in German when I, it turned out that because I was the only exchange student, they decided not to switch classes to English. Oh. And they were all in German at the time. So I ended up in Berlin, amazing city to do your exchange program in, but I had to. So, you know, everybody prepared for a class like entry test, I don't know, an hour reading script. I would wake up at 4 a.m. in the morning, you know, first three hours translating the script, then learning it in Polish, then learning to express the things in German, which was like, it was a few hours, but this is how, how it all started. And, you know, I loved, um, Eastern Europe is, it's uh, a little bit different still in terms of women in tech. So for example, on my first calculus class in, in, at the university, when I studied, you know, first calculus class, hundred guys, three girls. And, this is in, in Poland. In Poland. And the teacher goes like, you know, math is like woman. You don't need to understand it. You need to know how to use it. And, you know, you were in a first row and you were like, seriously, man? Really? What do I do now? Like, really? So this is the kind of vibe you get at the, at the Polish university. And then you have to prove yourself constantly because you are a girl. And somehow I think they believe that, you know, having long hair and more estrogen really destroys your ability to think uh, analytically. When I went to Germany, it was completely different. Right away, you were treated like a professional. You know, you were here, you were not cheating, you were, you were smart. And I, love, I loved studying there. My grades were so much better because of the professor's attitude, despite the language barrier that I had, you know? I spent so much time, but I felt appreciated and I felt being taken seriously. So I knew I wanted to come back to that environment after I graduated. So I decided I'm never gonna do my master's in Poland. I might wanna do it in Germany. I moved to Germany, I, I got a job, I started learning German, and after two years, I actually did my master's fully in German, so I learned German for two years and worked full-time, wow. and then that, that's how it started, actually. And the funny thing is, you know, I love, I think that, I don't know, I've never had any uh, weird situation with my German colleagues, so I, I love working with Germans. They are very professional, they have absolutely no problem with women in tech, on the opposite, if they see somebody else in a team, which usually would be some other Eastern European, is not nice to you, they would actually call it out. I was, I witnessed a situation like I was like, oh wow, that's cool. So that's why I wanted to go back because I knew I'll be treated seriously and it will be head start to my career. Was was the makeup of the classes and of school and and at work afterwards as? Um, as divided, were there still only several women and they were treated better or was it more women that you found in in tech in the, the semiconductor classes and such? So in Germany, actually what they did, and I think it was great, they would put... So in Poland, when I was when I was doing, I was doing electrical and computer engineering and we only had classes with people from electrical and computer engineering. What they did in Germany, the classes that several different students could take where, um, for example, calculus, it was for everybody at the university who could take calculus. So you'd see students from chemistry, from different engineering. So there are many more women at the university, not necessarily from computer science. And unfortunately, I never got a chance to work with a single woman on a team uh, in Germany. 
Oh, wow. So it was it was back to, you know, very male-dominated field. Um, when I got to back to Germany, actually, when I worked at one of the companies, I worked with the 40 guys in a team, and I was complaining to my boss. I was like, I need another woman, you know? There is not even a toilet for girls here. I feel like I'm in a hostile environment. You need to hire another woman. I remember going for holiday for two weeks. I came back, and my boss was like, had one-on-one with me. He was like, Magda... I did take seriously your concerns about not other women in a team. So right now, I want you to know that your team consists of like more equal distribution of men and women. I would even say now we have more women. I was like so excited. You can't imagine like, oh my God, I'm going to be in a team with women. And then, you know, after my one-on-one, we had like... um, uh, I I think it was a sprint review when they did a new presentation of like uh, of the team. So they divided a team everybody versus my own team so it's 100% female you know they had so much fun so I had my own team you know my boss had two teams reporting to him one only male and my team only me so yeah this is the only time I had female only team in my life (laughs) yeah I mean that's got to be so intimidating and I the only thing I can think that comes near it is at one point I was in a, a special chorus class in middle school and it was mostly women, but for the most part, I've been, you know, I went to a technical school. It was 55% men, but depending on what classes you were in, there were even more men. Um, how did you, like, w- what pushed you to stay in that? D- did you feel at any point that, like, okay, and, and I don't mean to be, I don't mean to say anything about what you should be doing or anything, but was there any point at which it's like, hey, maybe... I don't want to spend my life around only men and I should study something else or I should work in something else or go a different path or something. So, you know, I had that moment when I was doing my undergrad in Poland, I, I worked as a senior uh, junior network engineer and I remember joining the team, you know, as the girl that just joined, you know, it was the, the, the interview process was hard. There was assessment center, you know, 20 guys, three of which were, uh, in the same class with me, they did not get in. It was such a little win for me. Uh, but, and I joined the team and I, w- I believed I'm qualified for the job. And then the guys started making pseudosexual jokes constantly. And it's not really diff- it's not really easy to make me go red on my face, but I would go red on my face like three times a day. And I did not know, qual- I did not quite know how to react to that. You know, I'm not a person who would run and go to HR. That's not, that's just not who I am. And I was like, I need to deal with this. And I used to be, until that time, a very decent person, you know? And then after a week of getting that kind of attitude, I remember I was responsible at a time because it was after my uh, year of exchange. I had last year of university in Poland and I got back and my German was technically good enough to be able to communicate with people from, for example, for Germany, where, where I had a lot of servers I was responsible for. And I remember there was a server that went down that was responsible for a few, huge factory. And that meant that they had to stop production because they needed to, to have every product you know, registered. And I had to go in and fix it. And we had at the same time our daily stand-up or whatever. And my boss told me earlier that, you know, you need to prioritize. And your highest priority is like if something like this happens, you you omit all of the stand-ups, you just fix it, and then you come. But the guys decided... Three of the guys, I, I will never forget that. They just stood behind. They're like, where are you going to be done? Where are you going to be done? When are you going to? We are waiting for you. And I got so 
annoyed and you know i looked at one of them i looked him in the eye i was like honey no matter how hard i try i can never finish as fast as you you know and i did this kind of jo not jokes but like i played their game for like half a day and they gave up that guy got all red <laughs> and then they gave up but i was the moment of my life when i was like do i really want to deal with this shit and then i went to, i i'm I went to Germany and I was very lucky to work with incredibly smart, genuine people who treated me like an engineer and were very professional. And that changed my attitude because I, I started loving what I was doing. You know, I enjoyed like learning. I enjoyed programming. So I loved going to work every day. So I, so maybe that 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 the only time that when I had that was like in that company when I was working with these guys, you know, I don't know, four of them single, frustrated, making me pay for all of the failures they had it with women. After I said straight, you know, with that like what, half a day of me being damn really, it said it straight and we had no more issues. But then I was like, you know, there's this days you have after this kind of situations like um, we're not going to be friends. We're not cool. You know, I just learned how to work with you, but we're not cool. Yeah. And this is like, do, I'm spending a lot of time with people like that, you know. Do I want to do it? And, you know, after I went to Germany, that's why I also wanted to go to Germany to see if this is caused because maybe I'm not technical. Maybe this is not what I do. Or maybe it's because the environment I was in. Yeah. I, man, I have so many, so many points on this. I think the, your ability to sort of see that and, and they show this off in movies and things all the time, but to see how, you know, the more you get frustrated by these types of jokes, um, the more the person making those jokes is going to feel like they're winning and they're going to keep going with it. So, you know, at being, being a part of it and joining in kind of takes away any of their power in that way. Um, and I'm, I'm curious as to, um, do you think that like I work in tech and within the groups that I work with, there are definitely more men than women, but I have found that the women that I work with, like I have been, put in my place more times than I can name by women and men because I don't understand how the engineering of something works. I don't understand how the technical side of it works. And in no way do I really have a view of the abilities of, of men and women, but it still does surprise me how many more men there are because, because of that fact, because of the women that I work with are as impressive as they are. Does it surprise you that there aren't more women working in some of these fields or is it just based on the you know what do you think it is is it just the topics aren't as interesting or I, I don't know because I think for me I'm I'm almost surprised sometimes because of the um the quality of the women that I work with and in no way do I feel like they're any less capable and in a lot of ways it's such a nice um it's such a nice like situation to have women on the team that are not the same don't have the same attitude as all the men. And, and when you're with a team of, of 10 men and two women, the women's are the ones that actually bring some freshness to the team. The men all seem to have the same, myself included, the same attitude, the same jokes, the same view on a lot of stuff. So does it surprise you that, that there aren't more women in tech? Yes and no. I'll give you examples. As I told you, I'm very blessed to have had this training as a child that I'm very resi resilient. But... If you were the only woman in a 40-people team, I remember, like, you know, there's a female... It's a stupid thing, but it's like a female's toilet, and you go there, and you're confident I'm here by myself. You do... You know, you, you're standing in front of the mirror, and then the guy comes in, and you're like, 
oh, I did not know this was a male. Like there was a girl on the picture. The even the little the little nuance like that. It's 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 making you feel less. I don't know how to. Say, it's it's less welcoming, so to say, environment, right? Yeah. But also it starts. So in Eastern Europe, I'm not surprised because I I have friends who are in IT here, and it's so much harder for them to get promotion. And funnily enough, I, I have a friend who worked for years in the States and he was a manager on a, on a very well pro, a very good tech companies and he's a manager of a good company now. And he's like, I don't know what to do, Magda. I was like, why? Because I have this super talented girl and the guys just, you know, kill her spark. I'm like, oh, preach, being there, you know. <laughs> for example, as an engineer, you call a variable. I can call, call it car, but you might call and tell me, no, Magda, it's not a car, it's a vehicle. I might do an amazing algorithm and whatever what that car was supposed to do in that, whatever I was doing in that program, you're going to stick to me calling it a car, not a vehicle. And you're going to make my life a nightmare. And we're going to make delivery of this project a nightmare and make fun of me in front of everybody. And because guys are as funny as you are, they're going to make fun of me too. And if the, if the girl is environment like that, you're going to, you're going to start questioning your technical ability based on that which has nothing to do with your technical ability as an engineer. It has something to do with, I don't know, preference or someone picking on you. So if you are along engineers like that, I, I've seen, so one of the girls that studied with me, she gave up, she was very smart. And uh, second year in studies, she switched to math and she was like, I'm not going to deal with this for the rest of my life. I cannot take this anymore. It's too hard. She, she did well on exams she just could not take attitude at the university of her peers so it really does depend maybe maybe we were unlucky with this group because you know maybe there are different groups and i don't want to generalize but this is my my experience you know and obviously i met guys from eastern europe who are super smart and i loved working with but the trend and tendency was not that so from eastern europe i'm not i seriously am not surprised because you know you spend a lot of time with people you work with and is this something you want to get into right yeah. I, I totally agree. And for me, I mean, getting into spending a lot of time with those people is a lot of the reason I've pursued the careers that I have. And I think I understand that, um, I, you know, I haven't worked in Eastern Europe, but that it can be very frustrating and you don't want to deal with that. You don't want to deal with that on a consistent basis. There are parts of the tech world, which I'm sure you've been attracted to of the way people are curious about how certain things work or, hey, how can we figure out an answer to this problem? But at the same time, the biases they have that that sometimes, depending on the culture, they don't even recognize that they have, that's just too much to handle. And and I think the longer I've been in tech, the longer I've realized that everything is not exactly as I'd want. You know, the, the curiosity of asking questions and questioning norms and saying, how can we disrupt this thing is there's like an underside to it, which is, Hey, let's, for me, sometimes it's like, Hey, let's get to work and actually deliver something that the person wants rather than just playing around with ideas and, and, you know, dreaming up what could be. Um, so there are two sides to a lot of, a lot of the things that like can be attractive in one way. And, and I think that's really nice, but then in the other way can be frustrating how, how does the, so it seems like over the last, whatever, 20 years since Google sort of made, um, made like beanbag chairs, the, the thing at the office and wearing sneakers and shorts, how has that 
you know, you as somebody who's worked in Germany and then in London, have you seen that those efforts have been, um, have helped? Do you think that like that, that kind of attitude of tech has made its way into Europe and maybe it just hasn't gotten its way into sort of university in Poland or, or Eastern Europe? You know, I think it, the thing with Eastern Europe is also you need to think about it as a communist countries. And, you know, the role of women in these countries were different. It, cha it changes now, but like it was very patriarch, pa patriarchal. I don't know how to say like it was it was different. And it's it's so funny because on the on the one side, having said all of I said for women in IT, I remember that one of my colleagues from Brazil when I was working uh, in Germany, I worked in a very one of the teams I worked or companies I worked for was was very international. So in a team of 40, we only had three Germans. And I remember him bringing me a book. We all should be feminists because he did not think I was a feminist after a meeting when someone said something. Uh, repeatedly that was not nice to me he went to complain and he went and complained to HR because he felt that was not right that person happened to be actually from Ukraine and I was like why why do you do that I can handle this like this is not no biggie for me and he felt like it was a biggie and he felt like you are not how can you be in this field and so far and not be a feminist I'm like I'm not a feminist because not all my none of my rights are being violated I am where I am and no one stopped me you know so this yeah. is it's a, it's a, so that, that's kind of a thing is, is it because I'm being discriminated or are these guys just a bunch of assholes, you know, who have failed with many women because they don't know how to talk to them because they live in a virtual reality. So that's, that's, a, that's the kind of question you have to ask. Seriously, like I, I know guys from Eastern Europe who were perfectly fine, but they were, they're happy professionally and they're happy in their life. And you can see a big difference. So, sure. you know, I repeatedly ask myself, is it coming from, Am I being discriminated or are these guys assholes? And I think the answer is these guys are just assholes, period. Yeah. And and it's not for me professionally. I would think they would refer to to other women in this way, but it's just their way. It's not it's not that any of those rights are being violated. So I think in, in that sense, you know, the tech has made a change. Yeah. But it's just the mental change that people need to make. And unfortunately, I think, you know, uh, tech universities and this is what I loved in Germany that there are so many more women you would see at the university because they would put different they I think this was not a coincidence that you know I would see so many women because they they did not isolate computer science or electrical engineering to a different department they put it close to math they put it to places where uh, gender split was not as evident yeah so and I think this 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 is one of the issues that at the university I went to is like if you have three thousand guys and five girls, it's not like they're gonna feel like they're part of the club. It's like they're gonna feel like they're lost chicks on a bachelor party, you know? Because how can you not feel like that? You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. So th this is it's a co I don't I don't know I have no answer to that question because I ask myself that many times. Is it? Am I, have I ever been discriminated? No. Have I ever felt that that my opportunities are stolen from me? No, I just had to be strong emotionally to, you know, to to withstand yeah. sometimes. But it's not like I was not given. If you work hard, you are given. To, and this is what I loved in Germany, where I, I knew that when I work hard, opportunities will come and I won't be discriminated. That's why I told my friend, like, man, you want to fight for women's rights, go to, you know, Saudi Arabia. But here, none of them are being violated. And this is what Peterson talks. I love his um, 
his interview with Kerry Newman when he really like just, you know, intellectually outclass her because I think the way he thinks, I believe in a, in a, in opportunity of, of uh, in equality of opportunity, but not necessarily equality of outcome. So, you know, if, yeah, this is like, I don't, I don't know. He, he tries to prove that, you know, more women want to go to more social sciences than, than technical. And it's not that we don't have opportunities. So it's a very tough, it's a very tough one. <laughs> it is. It is. I, I appreciate your, I don't know, your candid thoughts on it. It's, uh, it's, it's great to hear from someone who's actually like kind of gone through a lot of it. And so you ended up going to Germany, you worked in Germany for a while. And obviously you and I met because I think you had reached out to the the group that was joining Entrepreneur First in London and to see if anybody wanted to look at flats together. And I was, I didn't have anywhere to live at the time. I remember I was in the United States and I was like waiting to come back for Entrepreneur First and I didn't know where I was going to live. And it, I, I'm not so sure I was about to reach out to the entire group of 70 people or so and say, Hey, does anyone want to live together? But, um, you seemed nice enough and, we're willing to kind of do some of the work on finding a finding the flat. How how do you think all of this has prepared you for being so outspoken and like outward? Have you always been like this? Because since I've gotten to know you, I mean, you're you have friends in every corner of the world, and you're like always ready to make new friends. But then you're you're tough about who they are. They better be nice people. They better not treat you with disrespect. Um, have you always had this attitude of being like so outward or is it something that you think grew as you started moving to different places? I think it's also how we were raised. If you met my family, we are all like that. You know, we are open. We are out. It's a big family thing also, I think, because I, I think you're similar in that way. When you grow up in a big family, you better be outspoken. You know, you got to fight for your place. You got to signal your needs. You got to do it. Your parents love you, but it's it's a bigger group and you you need to i don't know a fight for your place is a hard one it's like oh it was violent family no no it was it was a very normal healthy family but still if you you know if you're the only child all attention goes to you if you there are more people you need to learn to socialize and because i grew up with such a big family you know when i had to go to school i missed having people around me it's it's very natural for you to want to spend time with people because this is how you grew up so i think i have always been like that what i learned over time is that uh, quality over quantity. So it was. I was very not assertive as when I was younger, and I learned to be more assertive because uh, you want valuable relationships in your life, and this is, and you know, you we meet these valuable relationships prove themselves in your in your trying times, and this is when you realize you don't need hundred people who are not there. You need the three that are actually checking on you and making you feel better and are there for you. So I think this is, this is what evolved by being open and outspoken. I don't know. How was it like for you? You know, you, you are, you, you are also similar. I think, I think that was a good combination of, of us being roomies because we are similar. Yeah. I, well, I think the big family thing is, is a good point. I, I remember being, this is just a small story, but I remember being out to dinner one time with a few people in San Francisco and it was probably six of us or something. And we were ordering appetizers for the table for a few people. And I remember one of them came down and, and in a few seconds, one of the people we were with went and reached and started taking food off of it before everything arrived. And the, the girl I was sitting next to turned and she said, Hey, 
you know, I'm from a family of four. You don't want to play this game. Like we're, we're not fighting over this food because you're going to lose. Like I'm, I, I was raised that <laughs> if there's one piece of food that's better than the others, you know, you have to fight to get it. And I, I totally could like empathize with it. Um, I think, I don't know how I ended up being sort of as outspoken and trying to meet people as I am. I think, I think something happened where in the beginning of my life I was with, you know, in a pretty homogeneous uh, community and a lot of us had similar, you know, the differences between people were so slight and the, the person who was the most different looking looking at us now were very similar. And then going to school and realizing how different so many people are. And I had, I was sort I sort of shied away from that at first. I didn't really want to be... Um, I wanted to find more people that were just like me. But then once I got to know people who were from very different backgrounds and had very different experiences, I realized how much more interesting they were to me because I could learn a lot more from them. I could learn a lot more from the, you know, the uh, second generation Indian girl who is from Texas than I could from the, you know, white guy from Connecticut that was grew up in a very similar place to me. And it almost became, you know, thrilling to have those interactions and those relationships because it just gives you such a better perspective on things. And I think it, it broke down my, the boundaries for me on who I would talk to. I think my, I, I got a lot from my dad in this too. He, he sort of walks around the world just looking to chat with strangers it's almost like every every time he goes and goes to a restaurant goes to a store it's an opportunity to ask the waiter whether they've been busy recently and what is life like in this part of the world and uh and i kind of picked that up from him and you know you end up getting such good little nuggets about life when you are talking to different people and, and learning from different people and i think you know i came to london in a lot of ways, because my wife now is from Turkey and I, I wanted to be closer to her when she was in Turkey, but also because I wanted, I was in San Francisco and things were very, were getting very homogeneous. Even though there were African Americans and Chinese people and Indian people and white people, everybody sort of had the same attitude toward things. And coming to London, it was like you have people in finance and people in art and in tech and, and all different things. So, I made a, a clear choice when I was here to not really push toward the American expat community as much because it just felt like, you know, I, I, I certainly want to have some American friends and I do, but at the same time, getting to know people from different countries and different backgrounds is, it's fascinating, right? Like it, it's like the, the, it might be well, the most totally exciting not. thing. It's well, not only that. It's like, this is my, this is what you asked me why I learned German. It's like, and I, I know people like that. They go to a different country, never learn their language, stay 15 years and only, you know, integrate with their local community. They're from Poland. They'll only have Polish friends in, in Berlin. And I'm like, 
if you are so Polish and you only want Polish and you only go to Polish store, get the fuck back. <laughs> it's like, why are you even here? Yeah. It's not a country. It's, it's the same, I think, with Americans. Like, if you want to stay, if, if your only friends are Americans, if you like that culture, only that culture, why are you here? Like, you know, it's different thing for people who flee their country because of war. It's a completely different story. They don't want to leave. It's not the, the choice, the conscious, economical, whatever choice they make. It's just a necessity to be safe and for their families to be safe. It's a different thing. like, you know, making sure that it's safe. But for people like us who travel, why travel? This is this is the kind of thing, like, I, I don't avoid Polish people when I meet them or whatever. But I, you know, I try not to uh, actively seek them. Obviously, when I meet them and they're nice, I'm going to be friends because I don't discriminate. But it's, I also have noticed that it's very hard for me to be friends who are like that. So yes. I had a Polish friend in Germany, but um, I met her in uh, blah blah car. I don't know if you know what it is. It's like it was long before Uber came out there. So basically, it was a page where you could say, "I'm traveling from Munich to Warsaw." You know, it's two thousand kilometers, and I have three seats in my car, and I'm going to charge you five bucks or ten bucks, or we split the fuel costs. Okay. And it's kind of like couch surfing or Airbnb. Yeah. So basically, you could, you know, see if a person is verified. And it's been going on in Europe for like, I don't know, 10, 15 years. So I met her going back home for Christmas because there were no, I did not buy flight ticket. I was not sure when. Then the, you could not buy a train ticket because it was overbooked. So we went blah, blah, blah. And I met her. And we could not stay friends because all she wanted to do was to meet with Polish friends, to cook Polish food, to go to a Polish store, to go to a Polish church. And I'm like, no, I've been here for three years. And the only church I go to is German. You know, I learned how to pray in German because I'm in Germany. It's out of also respect to the culture you came to. You know, it's yeah. like it was my free choice. And I believe out of the respect to people you came to, you have to adapt to their traditions. You have to, you know, I'm not going to uh, have a, you know, open cleavage when I'm in Iraq. But also, you know, when I'm when I'm in Poland, when I'm in Germany, you know, I'm going to I'm going to eat schnitzel. I'm going to drink beer. You know, yeah. it's a huge part of culture so i think this is also another thing why we became friends because we both were like we we're curious and we know why we made the choice we made and we are not trying to you know be like mm, i'm in london but i should have been in the states where all my friends are no you shouldn't if you want to be there go there there is a plane every day yeah my my the time i've spent in turkey has really changed my mind on this too because i guess the first thing i wanted to say is that I think this this idea of living somewhere else and still wanting to be back home or have those comforts, it's not a new thing. Like, I if you've never read it, the book The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain is phenomenal because he writes about these Americans that travel around Europe, and it's in the 19th century, the end of the 1800s. And I can't believe how similar so many of the points are about, you know, they show up at at, in Rome and they can't believe how many tourists there are and they're all bummed about it because they want to have like the real Roman experience. And this was, you know, 150 years ago. There is no, the real experience is that there's tourists. Like that's the experience. And I think for years and years and generations, it's been, you know, the first people that came to America, they were staying in their little communities and there were certainly an American culture that was building, but there were still these little pockets of, of communities that were staying the same. Um, but like I said, I, when I went to Turkey and have spent time there and I've been the only American, like there's, there's, there's no one speaking English, much, much less, uh, Americans. It, it made it clear to me that being in the culture is the best way to really get the most and like, and like get those best parts out of the culture. 
and being able to say, um, use some of the language consistently, being able to, I'm sure, go to the German church, like that's where you really feel like you are interacting with the culture in the right way. And if you're going to go to Germany, for instance, and you need to eat steaks and American hamburgers and hot dogs, and you're not willing to have schnitzel and go to a beer hall, like you're missing the best part. And I don't think most Americans would do that. Like they love beer and we're willing to eat schnitzel. But how how do you know what you're missing if you're continually making sure you're going back to the American community, going to the American grocery store, going to the American restaurants, if you're not willing to jump into, for me, like some of the local British stuff and, and try it out and see what it is. Because all these cultures, they're not brand new. They've been around for hundreds, thousands of years, and they've figured a lot of things out. And you're, you're best off really just jumping in and getting, getting the most out of it, right? Yeah, but that there are things that are limit that are limiting you. For example, this is why I learned German. When I worked for for German companies, there are sometimes there were sometimes people who did not speak German, and they are left out on a you know lunch conversation where you pick a lot of things. You, you're you're not going to get a lot of culture. You're not going to understand the products you have on a shelf. Like you you need to you you. It's very hard. I think it's very hard to learn about a culture from just uh, from the tour. That's what you said, and I would love to hear about your Turkish experience because the culture is so close. I think. To, it's a it's a Muslim culture to Iraqi culture and it's completely different than what you grew up in. How how was it there and how did you feel? Yeah, I I think that the the biggest surprise for me has just been how how real and similar people are no matter where you are. You know, I first of all where I've been going, where my wife's from in Turkey is sort of central Turkey and it's probably as close to um, you know, Turkey is secular and it's not, um, it's not, is, well, I think it, I think it was with Ataturk right now. I'm not so sure. Yeah, anymore. fair enough, fair enough. But in, <laughs> in, uh, it definitely had, it definitely has a lot more secular feel than other places in the Middle East. People are, are wearing shorts. The men are wearing shorts frequently. The women can dress, you know in the way that one would in Europe, in, in America, um, there is, there are still mosques all over the place. You hear the prayers through the speakers throughout pretty much everywhere in the, in the country, but in a lot of ways, it's still, you know, they, they, there is some sense of, um, freedom of speech and, and you can say what you want about where that's at right now. But the, I think to me, it was still, it was very intimidating when I first went there and, I think mostly because I had never been, you know, I traveled a little bit around different countries, but I was always very much a tourist and going to a place, it was, oh, hey, you're an American, welcome. Um, we have sort of a English menu that we can give you and, you know, we speak pretty broken English that we'll, we'll talk to you. Whereas going to Turkey, it was, okay, you're, you're now in the culture. There, there is no plan for the English speaking, the Americans, the American person that comes. You're, you're just, out of you just can't speak the language that's the only difference and i think a couple things i learned right away was one how much communication happens without actual words and when you don't speak the same actual language as someone you can get so much across through your facial reactions the intonation of your voice the um the way your body just kind of enters into a conversation into a situation it reacts to news 
that was always that was very surprising to me. I think the other thing is is just how similar so many things are. Um, like the way children are sort of handled in all these cultures and or in Turkish and American is they're they're the center of attention and they make the same uh, people laugh at the same things that a little kid is doing, whether it's in one country or another. Um, they everybody is sort of able to deal with the same stuff. A kid is still going to say the same stupid things in one place as they do in another. Um, I was obviously very overwhelmed with the quality of the food. And, and that, I guess that plays into the biggest difference is the way that the family structure is set up. You mentioned this a little bit in terms of your, I guess your father's, um, culture is that the family is one level deeper. Like the, the cousins are brothers and sisters pretty much. And the aunts and uncles are almost like a second set of parents. My family in America was not like that at all. My cousins lived far away. We interact two times a year. Um, we all see our grandparents, but my aunts and uncles, I wasn't extremely close with growing up. Whereas in Turkey, it, you know, on any day you're seeing your aunts, uncles, cousins all the time. There's, there's a very, everybody's sharing everything all the time. And a lot of what brings a lot of that together is food. Like people are constantly eating together and the dishes are being cooked by, you know, grandma's showing them to, to her children, who's showing them to their children. And it just, the, the food, the purchasing food at a restaurant, bringing it home, going out to eat, it's just not nearly as common. And, and the food is phenomenal because of it. There's almost like a set of 40 dishes that everybody eats and, they're, they're all just very well made. People know how to make them. And I, I mean, that's, that's what I think about the most when I'm like away from there is getting some of those dishes and how I was just there last week. And I, I, my wife was saying she wanted to go back to Turkey for the food mostly. And I was like, come on, it can't be, it can't really be driving you that nuts. And then I got there and I was like, you know, you're right. The food here is just, it's so much better. I can't, we can't, I can't make this. I try to cook Turkish food as much as I as much as I try, I'm never going to be able to make it as good as they make it there. So, Oh, you know, Corey, I tried to make some dishes my mom made when I was in Berlin. And you have these cravings every now and then, obviously. I sometimes crave, I crave different things because I've learned, I crave a, a pumpkin pie sometimes. I had two cravings since, uh, since you know, uh, since my first and only Thanksgiving. And you want to do it, but, you know, you cannot do it there. But also it's the ingredients that you get because, you know, the kind of my mom always would when she makes a chicken soup, for example, she would go to a local farm when a farmer has like 25 chickens, not 25,000 chickens, and they are outside and the taste of the food is so much different. Like the, when she brought the rabbit, right, it's it's different kind of, it's, it's different. It's just quality of the food is incredible. And I, I think in, in Turkey it's similar in when you know when you know where to get your food when you're a local you know where to get the right foods and i think this this might be part of the you know of the difference but it's incredible that you say that with a family because i remember that was one of the biggest differences i saw also with my iraqi family that you know when i was visiting them we went to iraq and we visited them and then we were there and all of a sudden 50 people are there and they're hosting everyone and they're coming and going as they please as they please and they're staying overnight and it's normal it's so normal like when i visit my cousins i'm not rushing into their fridge and when i saw my cousins they're visiting the cousins where i stay they're like i'm gonna eat something all right and so i'm gonna 
they feel at home and this is the kind of notion of extent the kind of this kind of notion we do have in poland and i think in the states you guys do have to sorry excuse me <coughs> but um the notion of the family in middle east is much bigger so the family is much bigger than what we are used to here absolutely and i think that's a huge difference yeah and it's comforting because i think there's a as you brought up with friends you know it's about quality and and it does feel like in my wife's family they have a lot of people that they can trust and they can depend on all the time and it's not to say i can't trust my cousins i'm just not as close with them i wouldn't ask for the same things um i sorry go on no no it's just i wanted to mention one thing you know you remember my dad had a critical accident when he was visiting family in iraq and there is one thing that was incredible for me because the, uh, he was staying in men only department because you know it's a muslim country so in a hospital you would have men and female male and female department and there was something that was so incredible for me and still is until this day that me and my sister were staying next to his bed for like a month when he was in a critical state and we never were alone. So I stayed 12 hours, she stayed 12 hours, we changed. And there was always one cousin with us there. These guys had families, they had work. And for a month, they we never we never knew who's gonna come. They're usually like, you, you know, you would know the faces. But there was always one man staying with us with us in a hospital. And this was so natural for them. Like they would not let us stay alone. We were not Iraqi, it was not safe. ISIS was still active, you know? And there was this is something I cannot imagine that my cousins, for example, in Poland now would say, Well, it's it's fine, Magda, I'm gonna stay with you for next month next to your dad and the next day other cousin is gonna change, you know, they have their own lives. Yeah. And in Iraq the notion of family is so big that they're like, you know, it's you did not grow up in this culture. Your Arabic is broken. If somebody gets you, if something happens to you, you are in big trouble. You know, you're a woman alone in this country when ISIS is out there. Your ISIS is out there. You're not allowed to do that. So for me, this was this was so incredible that there was always someone for a month. Can you imagine, like constantly in a hospital with us? Yeah, I mean, it's it's this is, it's just the relationship, right? It's the expectations, and I think that's it's exciting to hear that because I think for a lot of a lot of people, at least that I myself included from from time before, kind of aren't sure how these countries that you've never heard of and you've only seen on the news, um, what life is like. Um, all right, Magda, I, I really appreciate all this time and I think this has been great to hear about all these things. I have a, just a couple questions before we go and, you know, a lot of the the purpose of this is I think there's a lot of people I talk to who... They want to make, um, whether it's a move to a new place, move to a new country, sort of jump into a new culture like like you did in Germany, or just jumping into a different sort of community, getting into a new job, into a new, uh, into a new space. They want to maybe become, become something different than they, than they have been for their, their life. I'm wondering, having seemingly done that with such ease in the past, are there any... Um, I'm going to ask about any specific advice that you have, but are there any books that you have read that have been books, movies, any type of media that's been particularly inspiring for you about, you know, moving into something new, moving to a new place, getting yourself settled with an entirely new group of people, a new community, something like that? 
Unfortunately, no. The only book I can recommend is the one that I got when I moved to Germany, which was At the Doctor. It was a translation book with all of the terms. And my doctor, like I had the same doctor for five years. He he could not, my like GP, he was like, first visit, I was with a book and I was reading, my stomach is hurting. He said something I made a face I don't understand. So he looked through the book and he was like, where is it hurting? You know, how long? So <laughs> that was the most helpful book. But now we have Google Translate. Uh, I don't know. I don't I don't think I have. I think the, the only thing I can say if you're in doubt is I do recommend to do it because you're going to learn either way and you're going to benefit either way. If it's an amazing culture and, you know, you're going to you might find different part of yourself that you did not know existed and you might learn a lot of things and you might say it. But if it's something that's completely not for you, you're going to learn to be grateful for where you're coming from and you'll you'll come back with the you know lighter and you'll come back knowing that yes this is my place and i had friends who moved out for a year or two and they're like they're unhappy before they moved out and they're like oh, i hate my job i it's constantly the same people and then they moved out and the stress for them was too high and the people were too different and they did not want to adjust and then they came back and they were happier because they felt the gratitude and they're like no this is where i belong and there are people like me who i have a few friends like that who just once you start traveling you cannot stop and it's i think it's similar with you you know you're you want experience want to experience more you want to learn more and in either in either either way you're going to benefit from that yeah all right, that's really well said. I think on that we can uh, kind of wrap things up. And thank you again for all the time. You, there's so much more we could have covered. I think hopefully at some point when um, when when this thing really gets rolling, we'll have a round two. But thanks for your time, Magda. This has been really thank helpful. You. Thank you so much, Corey. I feel really honored that you wanted to talk to me. You know, seriously, I do appreciate it. With my broken English and facts in between. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, you're. <laughs> You're as impressive as anyone I know, Magda. So keep it up and thanks no, again. Thank, thank you so much. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Settle the Far. All the music you hear comes from Peggy Bunker and the Bunkmates. You can find Settle the Far on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play, where please subscribe, rate, review. Give me a five-star rating. You can also find Settle the Far on podcast.coreygarvey.com, where you can give me feedback and let me know what guests you'd like to hear from. Until next time, stay healthy, stay inside, and stay inspired, people.